What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology podcast, and how these subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. We are back with another week, not talking Lord of the Rings, but I just have to say before we kick this off, amazing positive response to our first two episodes on Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings. We are going to strive far away from Middle Earth in this episode, but we will be back talking more Lord of the Rings as soon as we are done reading The Two Towers. So read along with us if uh, you are so inclined. But I'm going to talk about another, I think, fairly watershed moment, at least in popular TV culture. There are certain times where art and philosophy and complex questions all meld together in one beautiful, hysterical, and comedic way. Actually, no, that's only ever happened once, as far as I know. And if I'm being a little cheeky, we are going to talk about the end of the TV show on NBC, The Good Place. Welcome. Everything is fine. The good place is over, but Lord knows we have not stopped thinking about it ever since the finale aired. I'm so excited to talk about the finale, the way that you just described it as this watershed moment when philosophy and comedy came together in an incredible, uh, ridiculous premise on network television. It has been really an amazing ride. And for four seasons to go as well as they did, to remain up for four seasons and to continue pumping out great content... What an achievement. Thank you to Michael Shore and the entire cast and crew for The Good Place. I'm so excited to talk about it. I mean, in truth, it is, without a doubt, I think one of the best shows currently on, well, it's off now. I think it's one of the best shows of recent history. It's easily one of my favorites. Philosophy is, to me, my first academic love. When I started really wanting and enjoying learning, it was philosophy that I really got my uh, metaphoric brain teeth sunk into and started ingesting and investigating and pondering and thinking about. And while there are a lot of shows that have philosophy as a part of them, a lot of shows in which there are philosophies being worked out by particular characters or situations or dilemmas, Easily think of Tony Stark as a consequentialist 
versus Steve Rogers as a deontologist and think of Captain America Civil War, really good example of that. The Good Place really is very different. And it's different because it takes an academic approach to moral philosophy in that one of the main characters is a moral philosophy professor whose job is to teach moral philosophy in a show in which all of the characters are dead and in the afterlife. I'll say this now before we proceed any further. Spoiler wall is up for The Good Place. We will be spoiling everything to the finale. If you're a fan of the show, if The Good Place is on your to-do list and you have yet to watch it, I would urge you to stop now, watch The Good Place, then come back and join us on the podcast because there are some really amazing twists and turns in this show that you just don't want to hear coming from me or Laurel. You want to experience them on your own. Absolutely. And seasons one through three are on Netflix, available to stream right now. So there's no reason not to go and binge it all. Uh, Every episode is 23 minutes and it just flies by as you're soaring through the cosmos. So make sure that you go out and check out this show. To uh, quote a podcast that we have worked with that we love, The Bingeables, The Good Place is very bingeable. It is bingeable, It is one of the most bingeable shows out there. But before we roll up our sleeves and really dive into this show, we have a lot that we want to get through in terms of theme and analysis here. Um, One thing I just want to point out, I've been asking people if they want to follow me on Twitter, to follow me on Twitter at DerekCJones198. And I did this because the Midnight Myth Twitter is 99.99999% of the time run by Laurel. And maybe some of you out there want to talk to me as opposed to Laurel, which I know is stupid because you don't. But long story short, my Twitter handle is not Derek C. Jones 198. It's Derek Jones 198. So I told everyone to follow me on Twitter and gave everyone the wrong Twitter handle. So if you want to say hi to me, and not Laurel, and I have access to the Midnight Myth Twitter, so I will see everything that happens on it. But if you did want to say, hi, host Derek, it's Derek Jones 198 not Derek C. Jones 198 You're doing amazing. I am a mother-forking dumb, dumb, dummy. Listen, we're all on a journey, Derek. We're all trying to improve slightly a little bit every time and becoming the best versions of ourselves. So you may have said the wrong handle in the past, but now you've improved and you said the right handle. And I think that earns you some afterlife points, okay? All right, one step closer to the good place. All right. So if you did want to dialogue with us on Twitter, uh, we are at The Midnight Myth, or you can uh, talk to Derek at DerekJones198. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And uh, we have a website, MidnightMyth.com, where there is additional content. Uh, You can sign up for our email list or drop us a line there. And you'll also get links on that website to our Patreon. If you wanted to support us financially, that would be so, so appreciated. And it gets you extra perks, including bonus episodes. So please consider becoming a Patreon if you love the show. Uh, And there's also a link to our merch store. So if you want to show off how much you love the Midnight Myth with a shirt or a mug or a phone case, you can get it there. There is also merch for the Wheel of Ka, which is our Dark Tower side podcast on that website. And if I may interrupt fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Steve and I are very close to being ready to do our first discussion on book seven, The Dark Tower. We're going to be reading books one and two, of the Dark Tower. So there's several books within the seventh book. And uh, so if you're following along and are reading with us, 
You want to get up to there to about the end of February. February being a shorter month, we're going to have an episode recorded in February, but it'll probably be out first week of March, you know, depending on our schedules. It's got to be hard coming to the end of that series, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. It's the fate of every quartet that it should eventually break. And uh, I'm feeling a little uh, ka-shume. All right. I, I don't know what that means, but that is wonderful. It's uh, depression. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, the last thing I will say in this intro is if you love the show and you can't give us your money and you don't have that change to spend, but you want to help us out in some way, the best way to do it is to leave us a rating and or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps keep us on the charts and helps other people find the podcast so that they know that you love us. They know that we're worth listening to. So please consider dropping a few words and five stars for us. That would be so, so appreciated. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who has given us a review. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to our amazing Twitter followers who like, share, and retweet and talk to us. Uh, Just, it's an amazing time to be a podcast host. It really is. Yeah. We love you. On with the good place. Shall I do a briefest of briefest of reef caps? Sure. The good place is a show that features four main characters, Eleanor, Jason, Tahani, and Chidi, who have all recently died. When they die, they are awoken by a presumable angel by the name of Michael, who tells them that when you die, you go to an afterlife. One is a good place or in a bad place, and they are actually in the good place. The only problem is, is that Eleanor doesn't belong as she did not leave a good or virtuous or ethical life. This puts her directly into contact with Chidi, who is a moral philosopher, who's trying to teach her moral philosophy in the hopes that she can stay in the good place, finally learning how to be a good person. At the climax of the first season, we learn that they're not actually in the good place. They're in the bad place. Michael is not an angel. He is a demon. And he designed this to torture the four of them by taking four people who belonged in the bad place that were going to hate each other and making them spend eternity with each other. Throughout the seasons, Michael is continually trying to perfect this formula of torture by rebooting the humans and making them live this out. Every iteration, 803, I think it is, 802 iterations that he does, Every single time they figure out that it is in fact the bad place and they become good people, making Michael want to team up with them so that he can cover up how much of a failure his experiment is from the other demons in hell who just want to physically torture the humans for humanity. Long story short, they go through a long adventure together where Michael, combined with the godlike assistant Janet, who can manifest anything at any time, who sees times as an instant, as well as has all of the knowledge in the universe, working together, find a way to improve the afterlife system. They have learned that scoring humans based upon their moral actions with a set of points, and then either eternally damning in the bad place or eternally rewarding in the good place, is fundamentally flawed. The world is complex, and even people acting out of goodwill will accumulate more bad points than good points. So they devise a system by which people go to the bad place initially, and that they go into neighborhoods similar like our main characters did, and that they are being tested. At the end of the test, they get briefed on what they did well and what they did poorly, and they get rebooted to live the test again, carrying a vague memory of what they learned, where they don't know everything, but they do bring some lessons under the idea that on a long enough timeline, 
and a long enough test with people being able to remember said tests, eventually everyone will make it to the good place. Fun fact, they get to the good place and find out that it kind of sucks because everybody has everything that they've ever wanted and it tur- forever and it turns everyone into a bit of an idiot. Chidi seeing this problem devises a solution by which people can choose to leave the good place and to disintegrate into whatever, which we can debate and talk, discuss what that is, but they can essentially end their existence and leave the good place permanently. Once people realize that the good place can have an end, they are now able to enjoy the good place and our characters all develop a sense of peace where Jason learns to live several Jeremy Baramies by himself in the woods just so he could say goodbye to Janet, very much like the monk John Yu he was masquerading as at the beginning. Eleanor learns to be selfless and allow the love of her afterlife, Chidi, to walk through the door rather than trying to manipulate him into staying. Michael learns to be finally a human being, what he's always wanted, uncertainty and to have no idea what comes next. And then Eleanor decides that it's time for her to walk through the door. Oh, and how can I forget Tahani, who decides to leave the good place to become a architect of the system because she's on her never-ending quest to build better and cooler and more amazing afterlives. And that's the show. What an incredible recap. You just recapped four seasons of a very complex philosophical show, and I think you handled it with a plum. I applaud you, sir. Yeah, one other thing. The the central moral conflict, the philosophy of the show, it's about three different main schools of thought. If you've seen the show, you know this. Deontology, which is a rules-based moral system as uh, originally thought of by Immanuel Kant. Virtue ethics, which originates from ancient Greece from Aristotle. And then consequentialism, which comes largely from England in the 19th century, maybe 20th, I can't remember. But it does have some sort of ancestors in ancient Greece. As well, but John Stuart Mills being the main thinker, one of the main thinkers of that. And these three moral systems are constantly in dialogue through the characters about answering the fundamental question of all ethics. How does one live a good and happy life? And that's the purpose of the philosophy of ethics, to answer that question. Before we delve too deep into what this show means, what it's about, why it rocks, just hit me real quick. The finale is over. We're talking about it. We obviously felt something about it, so we wanted to bring it to the podcast. We've talked about it before. Laurel, just tell me, how are you feeling? I mean, I think I finally stopped crying. Uh, I may tear up a little bit more as we continue to talk about the finale in this episode, uh, but it was an emotional roller coaster for me uh, and kind of incredible that this show that was so academically charged and so whip smart and funny was able to pull so much emotion uh, out of the relationships of its characters. And that's the kind of lasting impression that I have of it is uh, this feeling of love for the characters. Um, I loved this show. It was Uh, like I said, so smart, so funny, so emotional. Uh, And I thought that with a really unusual and clever premise, it was able to wring every bit of cleverness out of that premise. There was almost nothing that they could have done that they didn't do. Uh, We went to the real good place. We went to the real bad place. We went to fake versions of both of those things. Uh, We went back to earth and saw life 
we experienced moral philosophy through teachings and we experienced moral philosophy through uh living trolley problems and through actual lived experience. Uh, and I thought that for four seasons of this show to do so much, to do it so nimbly and to do it with uh, just incredible care for these bad people who are also deeply lovable, relatable characters is just something I, uh, I'm so grateful for. Uh, I'm so glad it existed. What about you? Yeah, I dare say it's one of those few things where a major network sitcom was truly unique and revolutionary. There's nothing like The Good Place before, and I dare say I can't imagine there'll be anything like The Good Place after. I mean, if The Good Place was as popular as a sitcom like, let's say, Seinfeld, which it wasn't, it was a very popular show, but not at like a monolithic, it's not an everyone loves Raymond type of a sitcom. <laughs> sure. In terms of its popularity, yeah, yeah. there might've been spinoffs, but I think it was popular enough to have the fans that it had. There probably won't be a ton of spinoffs. The cast was amazing. Every episode in it is somewhere between uh, the golden meme and amazing. Yeah. It's a little uh, virtue ethics inside joke. Yeah, every episode's great is what I'm trying to say more clearly and succinctly. And I, I think it's just a truly marvelous, marvelous thing to go on this journey. I don't know how you make a Manuel Kant funny. It's, I, listeners, if you've ever read Kant, I have, it forking sucks. It's really, really not fun. It's dry. It's very complicated. It's easy to tune out. And even if you love the idea of like learning about Kant, it's really, really hard to read. And somehow this show made Immanuel Kant constantly funny. And like, I, I just don't know how that's even possible until it happened. And it's just amazing to me. Yeah, you know, that's something that a lot of moral philosophy and ethics has in common. Reading those texts is extremely daunting. And if you're a person who's trying to figure out how to be good, how to be moral, how to be happy, the last thing I think you're going to really do is open up a textbook, right? Well, you're you're going to open up that textbook if you you're taking I, the class. You and I differ in that regard. <laughs> but most people go yeah. through their lives without touching those things. This, and they try to be good through just picking things up from their experience. And I think that this show took the uh, incredible bounty of uh, academic literature around morality and ethics and said, let's lower the bar of entry. Let's make this accessible to people. Uh, by making it funny, by making it fun, and by showing it through characters who are able to reflect on it in the moment. Because we can all point to Captain America's and Tony Stark's, and we can all point to uh, you know, instances of philosophies being worked out through characters if we know that they exist. But for the characters to be actively reflecting on it in the moment and weighing which one is the best and you know, learning to craft their own moral systems is a really satisfying way to build that premise out. And I did think uh, the finale was supremely satisfying too. That's one word I'll, I'll say to this, is I felt satisfied by it. I felt ready to walk through the door. Not really, but it, it, it gave me that same sort of impression that the characters had. Yeah, totally agree. Let's, uh, let's dive into some specifics here. Yeah. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. 
I think I'd like to begin with just sort of understanding from a more macro, let's go back in time, what is ethics? Why does it exist? The show definitely talks about it. The show spends a lot of time in discussing ancient Greece, and most of the philosophical traditions that we have today are rooted back in ancient Greece. And there were people asking really huge questions, in particular in ancient Athens, which was, how do you live a good and happy life? Or rather, the good life, what is it? The good life and the happy life are, can be synonymous and they can be interchangeable. And out of those questions came the philosophical discipline of morality or ethics. Now, it's really complicated, but at the end of the day, the like definitive stamp on the ancient Greek version, and there was plenty of debate and disagreement, was Aristotle, who plays a major role in as a sort of like distant teacher in Aristilian virtue ethics. And I'm just curious what you think ethics, how to live the good and happy life, the good place is about how to live the good and happy afterlife. Right. Right. Not our actual lives here on earth, you know, but if we take that lens, how to live the good and happy life, what do you think the show ultimately concludes about the good and happy life? Does it come down definitively in any one system or school? Um, Does it not? What do you think it really is saying about the central philosophical question of morality? I think that's a really good question and a really big one. And there are some other aspects outside of just the philosophy that I'll probably want to touch on at some point during this episode. But to attack your question head on, uh, you started by uh, sort of summing up the origins of morality and virtue ethics, which uh, I think plays heavily into the finale and into most of the characters character's growth, um, as does deontology and consequentialism. I, um, you know, we also can't ignore the fact that the show uh, is heavily inspired by uh, a work by T.M. Scanlon called What We Owe to Each Other. He is a, a contemporary uh, thought leader in contractualism, and that is something that comes back again and again, a book that Eleanor is trying to read to learn more about Chidi's philosophy. Um, so I think it has played in all of these different sandboxes and had our characters kind of try on different moral philosophies for size. And I think that rather than landing in saying definitively, this is the one, even um, rather than constructing the morality test or the afterlife test or the good place in the image of one of those philosophies, it's able to kind of reflect and understand the good pieces of all of them. Um, we see before the official launch of the new good place of the new afterlife tests that Chidi, who's going through the you know final motions of making sure everybody's prepared, has an expert on uh, the trolley problem who's going to come and teach it because you have to know that. You have to have a basis in that if you're going to understand any morality. He's got a writer whose book is about how um, you know death gives meaning to the events of our lives. He's still interested in Aristotelian uh, virtue ethics, and he's still interested in deontology. Uh, There is a space where all of these philosophies can kind of live together and intertwine, as well as this idea of being connected to people and owing something to other people. Uh, and, And we still, just as we do in life, have the opportunity to choose what is going to give us the most good and happy afterlife. 
Uh, one character who I'll point to in terms of their growth, uh, who I would love your opinion on this, is uh, Tahani. At the end of uh, you know, this journey, Tahani has grown immensely from a character who was born in a world where she gets everything she wants without working, without trying, without uh, you know, actually struggling to achieve it, who can just throw money at all of her problems, and becomes a person who spends her eternity, spends her afterlife trying to become a great craftsperson, you know, learning from Nick Offerman how to become a master woodworker. You know, she, she creates a massive list of things that she wants to do, and most of them are about uh, picking herself up and learning a new trade or a new skill, becoming the best at a certain type of thing that she never would have touched while she was on Earth. And then her final fate is to choose to be an afterlife architect. So instead of you know, sitting back and luxuriating in paradise, she chooses work. She chooses the virtue of work. And she chooses to continue throwing herself into work and struggle and uh, you know, trying to achieve something, even in the afterlife. Was, was there, a, you started with a question for me because it sounds like you just summed up Tahani perfectly, which is fair, which is awesome. Well, I, I just think that, uh, you know, that's one facet of your question here. So I'm curious how the other characters fit into this because I think we could, we could put Tahani uh, in the camp of being like a, a person who on earth had no real moral system, but in the afterlife has embraced virtue ethics, has embraced, uh, you know, that, she has to continue working on her character and that good deeds will flow from working on her character, that she is striving to be uh, the best version of herself through toil. Well, I also think all the characters, as we learn about their lives pre their first death, are all egocentric. Yeah. They're all thinking about themselves, what they're going through, with Jason probably being the one that at least cares about others the most, and that he has a dance troupe. He loves Pillboy. He loves Pillboy. He loves, he loves his Doug. dad. Yeah. You know, but he is also so unbelievably ignorant to consequences and what they mean that he just lives for pure pleasure principle. Yeah. Whatever feels good in the moment, just do it. And he can't think about consequences at all whatsoever, you know? But at the end of the day, I think they're all very egocentric and they all have to learn to not think about themselves. I think the one thing that you learn from all of the characters is that they separate themselves from the equation and are able to dispassionately look at actions about whether they wear, whether they're weighing, what is the moral rule of said action? What is the best virtue that you can have in said action or whatever the consequences are, they learn to be dispassionate and less egotistical. And for Tahani, I think that manifests in actually doing things. Yeah. Realizing that she didn't do anything with her life. Right now she's in her afterlife and she's going to do things and she's going to learn how to actually be the best at something rather than just pretending to be good at everything. When you literally have a life about nothing but frivolity and about uh, displays of celebrity and excess and luxury and yeah. opulent displays of charity that make you feel good, but like you're just doing them so you can brag about, you know, what a humanitarian you actually are. When in reality, that's just about being like, oh, Taylor Swift, I gave $100 million away, you know? And you only gave 50. Look at me, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I do think you're right that she does decide uh, that there is an element to 
her separating herself to saying like, I want a job to do. I need to be busy. I need to be working at projects. And I think I need to perfect those projects that I think resonates a little bit to me with Aristilian virtue ethics. Yeah. And that she's finding the virtue in being a woodworker. What's the best version of a woodworker? What's the best version of throwing a party? What's the best version of paving a driveway? What's the best version of my family? And once she starts and hits those virtues, she starts thinking, okay, well, what's the next step? The best version of the afterlife. So let me start at the bottom and I will figure it out and work my way to make the best version of the after afterlife. I agree. I also think there's a, this is just an interesting thought, the difference between individual ethical systems and structural. And I think that's a big theme of the show because it's about systems which judge people based upon their ethical choices. The afterlife is designed, it has a system, it's been in place since the dawn of humanity, and it's failed. And if the system itself has failed, and failed in its ability to judge, so its base premise is, well, this is a system designed to judge humans on how ethical they are or are not, and based upon that, we're going to award or reward, pardon me, or punish them in the afterlife, it's about learning the structural failure of that system. The system itself is unethical and needs to have a reform. So there's an element of a structural point of ethics, which is about what are these things that we are building? How are they affecting people? And how are they ultimately judging people? When are these individuals free in this system? And ultimately it's concluded when they realize nobody's gone to the good place in like a thousand years on earth time, they're like, well, obviously this must be because the demons have contaminated the point system because otherwise some people should have gotten there. And then that they learn that it's impossible to be an ethical person on earth in this point system, because no matter what you do, there are so many unintended consequences, whether it's you have a glass of wine, drink a cup of coffee, read a newspaper, You've injured more people than you've helped. So they have to reevaluate the structural uh, problems and ethical problems in this system of judgment is one of the main like focuses on the second half of the show. And then what do we find when they finally get to the good place? That system is so flawed that the it's good actually place is broken. Yeah, yeah, it's actually ruined them. So there's a big element of, hey, when we are trying, and this is a, a symbolic way I read that, because out of the philosophy of ethics becomes the, the inevitability of law, which is let's try to figure out the best way for us to live, the way that we're all going to be the most happy, and let's put rules that we all have to follow to, to make sure that that works. Famously, like Moses talks to God and comes down with the Ten Commandments the basis of Mosaic law, rules that we all have to abide by so that we can all live good and happy lives. And ethical philosophy eventually gets enshrined in morals and then into laws. And so we are seeing this system, which are the quote-unquote laws of the afterlife, and we're seeing a bunch of rebels being like, structurally, this is just not doing its job. And, and the evidence is, hey, if we were judged to be so terrible that we had to go to the bad place, look at us now. We can get better. 
We can actually become good, legitimate people. And do we conform to any one particular moral, philosophical uh, bent to it? Not really. There's a blend. I, you know, I could say that uh, Eleanor learns deontological morality. She learns that we have a duty to act out of goodwill and that we have rules that we must follow and that we can must do this selflessly. And she learns that in when she finally sits next to Chidi and says, I can never come up with a justification to convince you to stay. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go because, and it's selfish of me. That is a corrupted intention on my action that I'm fundamentally being a bad person. And she has to learn that. Chidi needs to learn how to actually make a decision. He has to learn that there are consequences to his actions and his inactions, and he has to learn how to act. And he learns how to do so, highlighted by him ordering the tiramisu. You know, a simple thing like that he couldn't do. And then walking through the door confidently. Uh, I mean, that's an incredible moment that he is just able to say, I'm ready and walk through the door. He has made the decision. He doesn't have to sit on the bench. He's ready to go. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing to see in that character who we've seen with so many stomach aches. That yes. He is not belly aching about it being the end of his afterlife. He is calm and he is complete. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, I think that this this dichotomy you have brought up between the sort of structural morality and the individual morality is really interesting because with the the broken system that we're trying to reform, uh, it it's correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it has leaned very heavily into consequentialism. Uh, it has leaned very heavily into weighing, uh, you know, the uh, the moral goodness, moral rightness of an action purely based on its consequences. I think it sort of takes into account intent, but it mostly takes into account consequences, right? No, because Tahani helps people with their charity, but she gets negative points because it was from corrupt will because she did it selfishly. So it is both. Yeah. There are the consequences of your actions are judged plus your will in how you did them. Um, and plus if it conforms to a set of moral rules, so it has every aspect of moral philosophy is built into the point system that ultimately get, you know, a good point versus a bad point. And if you, whatever you have more of is your score. Great. Thank you for clarifying that for me. But those three systems are not talking to each other, right? So there is no sense that in the point system as it currently exists, that consequentialism and deontology and virtue ethics can at all be integrated in order to assess someone's actual character. There is no sense that it is assessing actual character in people. And the system that they have to design afterwards has to allow for some amount of reasonability and flexibility in order to actually assess character. Because no person is going to go through life or afterlife rigidly conforming to one very strict moral philosophy that was laid out by Aristotle or Kant or whoever. Usually it takes us time, we try different things, we do things based on our own pleasure or people that we care about, uh, and it, it takes time to figure out kind of what kind of moral person we wanna be if we ever figure that out. So the new system has to take that into account and has to recognize that everyone is on their own path but everyone can become a moral person by following 
any combination of those things. One's character is a fluid uh, and yet uh, genuinely improvable thing. Yeah, I totally agree. It doesn't say any one of these systems is the key. It says learning from all of them and being able to ultimately, as an individual, make the best choice in the best moment with the best facts. With the best will. With the best intention. I do think the show leans heavily into Kantian moral philosophy as the sort of the guiding North Star. Not dogmatically, not saying everyone must do this because consequence does matter. Jason is the character that doesn't understand consequence, right? His will is actually really good. He's not selfish at all. He just doesn't understand that his actions actually affect people and he just acts on impulse, right? So consequence is super important versus Tahani, who is 100% focused on the consequences of her action, but her will is corrupted, which is why they're paired against each other, right? Because they're total opposites. Yeah, yeah. And that's why that they're designed to drive each other crazy. One who can only think of, you know, doing what they want to do in the moment with regard to consequence, and the other one obsessed with the consequence so much that they actually end up becoming a selfish, bad person. And so I don't think it, it takes any one of those dogmatically, but because Chidi is a Kantian philosopher and he designs the system and Chidi, if like, if, a, if there's a character that quote unquote wins, you know, to me it's Chidi because he gets to remember all 800 of his lives or afterlives, I should say, and use that to design a system which saves the universe from being flushed down the toilet by the judge. And then based upon that, he gets to spend as much of eternity as he wants, as many Jeremy Baramies as he wants with his afterlife soulmate. The best eternal girlfriend ever. And decides confidently, as you said, to walk into non-existence. And I do think... Uh, because of that, it does lean a little bit more. And I might be coloring this myself because I also am very influenced by Kant and do fundamentally subscribe to things like the categorical imperative and I'm drawn to characters that act in, you know. Yeah, you, you <laughs> yes, are for sure. That, you You're know, like, Captain America. That's super bad. Like these are like, I'm drawn to those like that. Um, so I do get that, um, that maybe part of that's my perception but I don't think it's an accident that Eleanor is reading a book about Kantian moral philosophy in a contemporary sense, quotes the book in her conversation with Chidi at the restaurant in Paris, where she says, there's no way I can ever justify convincing you to stay knowing you want to leave. To me, he says that at the glue, the moral glue of the show is at the very least our duty to each other, that we have an obligation to others to try to act as good as we can towards them. Now, I know that sounds really simple. What does it mean then to be good? To follow a set of moral principles and rules which put the others ahead of ourselves. To treat people as ends in and of themselves and never as a means to an end. And we see Eleanor make that decision saying, Chidi, I see him as a full and complete self, a self that can act in their own goodwill, who has made a decision, and that decision I am against because it benefits me in the short term, it benefits me in the 
my own fears and anxieties about being alone. It benefits me in the fact that this is my lover and my friend and my afterlife travel companion. So I'm going to do everything I can to change their mind for me is seeing Chidi as a means to the end of Eleanor's pleasure. And she sees that as fundamentally wrong. And because it's pleasure and happiness can be conflated to a, you know, Kantian moral philosophy, your own pleasure and your own happiness are not the same thing. Sounds seems counterintuitive because shouldn't pleasure make you happy? Well, no, acting out of your own goodwill and doing that goodwill to help others is actual happiness, not your just individual pleasures. This sequence that you're referring to, wherein uh, Eleanor realizes that Chidi is getting ready to walk through the door. She can sense that he is feeling complete and kind of bored with the good place. Uh, She takes him to Athens. She takes him to Paris. She almost takes him to Six Flags just to show him that the good place is still awesome, that their relationship is still awesome, and then finally arrives at this uh, this realization that she really can't hold on to him. She can't make this maxim about how Chidi's can't leave the good place because it would make Eleanor sad. There is no justification for that. What this serves to do is remind us that even the best version of yourself Right here, the best version of Eleanor still has space to grow, you know, still has opportunity to improve and to continue her journey. Uh, She may have reached what she thinks is the summit of how good Eleanor can be, but she realizes that she still can continue striving to put people ahead of herself, even if she thinks she's already gotten there. And what does she have to do before she can walk through the door? There's two other people that she can help that she needs to help. One is Mindy to convince Mindy to join in the system to eventually become a good person and get to the good place and to convince Michael that it's time that he become a human being. And that I think is just a beautiful fitting end. It's only after those two things that she does that she says, okay, now it's complete. Now I can walk through the door. Beautiful. It's just, it's such a good finale. It really is. Um, I would love to segue just a little bit. I want to continue um, this line of inquiry about the changing afterlife system and reflect back on the events of the show at large uh, through the changes that happen in the system, if that's okay with you. Let's do it. So uh, many will remember there was an episode in season two called Dance Dance Resolution that is a pretty quintessential episode of the show in that it is the one where uh, the neighborhood has been rebooted, they have figured out it's the bad place again, and Michael uh, has to try and keep his boss, Sean, from knowing that he is continually rebooting uh, the neighborhood. And every time it gets rebooted, Eleanor figures out that it's the bad place. It doesn't matter what they do differently. They can't pull the wool over her eyes for more than a couple of months. So they reboot it like 800 times. Uh, And on the last time, they go to Mindy St. Clair's place and they start to understand what's been happening to them because Mindy has been there for every single reboot and knows the plans that they've come up with, knows what they've tried to do, and knows that they always get rebooted again. 
At this moment, Chidi starts to reflect on how he is caught in Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. And I think that's an interesting theme for the show uh, and an interesting theme for the afterlife system and the neighborhood system that gets evolved upon in the finale. The premise of eternal recurrence is that all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. That's actually a quote from Peter Pan uh, that is often inextricably tied to Battlestar Galactica, but I had to say it. Um, but it has roots in classical antiquity. Uh, this is an idea that has uh, you know, a, a history in ancient Greece, in ancient Egypt, in the Hebrew Bible, in ancient India, and even in Mesoamerican cultures. There's always been this sense of a cyclical uh, nature of time and existence. The basic concept is that everything in the universe, every particle, every event is recurring infinitely, and it has been recurring, and it will continue to recur infinitely because time and space are infinite, but our bodies and particles and events are finite. So logically it follows that it will recur. Now we get an interesting illustration of this in the Aeneid, which is the famous epic poem by Virgil about the king Aeneas. There is a sequence where Aeneas descends into the underworld and he learns the ins and outs of the afterlife from his father, Anchises. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. He learns that any time a person dies, their soul leaves their body and goes through a cleansing process, a purgation that is uh, sometimes equivalent to torture or punishment. So some souls, the very best ones, will move on to Elysium, which is the Greek mythological version of the good place, of heaven. Uh, but most souls don't get that far. They'll either go to Tartarus, which is the equivalent of hell, or they will go back to earthly life. And most souls end up going back to an embodied earthly life. Before they can do this, however, every soul gets lined up and directed to drink from the river Lethe, which is the Greek mythological river of forgetting. So if you drink from it, you forget everything. And then you go back into a body and live again, completely ignorant of the fact that you lived before, made a bunch of mistakes, and got punished for it in the afterlife. So you go back essentially doomed to repeat your own mistakes again and again and again, and get eternally rebooted with no memory. It's a kind of tragic loop that the soul is caught in, that it is uh, recurring again and again, making mistakes, getting punished for them, and never being able to learn from it. And this is exactly what Chidi says in this episode in season two. He says, it's like karma, but we can't learn from it. And this, I think, is the principle that he takes into the new system, is that, okay, the good place uh, neighborhood that Michael uh, you know, designed for us actually did offer us a chance to improve. However, it was a lot harder because we couldn't remember the mistakes that we made before. So the new system has to accommodate some amount of remembering, has to allow us to learn from our mistakes in a reincarnation system that is much more like karma, that allows us to get better and better and better with each iteration. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about karma. It's an interesting yeah. idea, and I'd like to flesh it out a little bit. I don't think we've ever talked about karma before in the pod, have we? Not really. We don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about Eastern philosophy. When we do, we love it, but uh, it's not something that comes up super frequently on the podcast. 
Um, but karma is an idea from Hinduism uh, that has to do with the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And karma is, you know, in the most reductive way of defining it, uh, it's the sort of good energy that reflects back on you when you do a good thing or the bad energy that reflects back on you when you do a bad thing. So if you have good karma, you will be reincarnated as a higher level of life. And if you have bad karma, you'll you know, go back down the rungs to an animal or a worm and work your way back up the ladder. Yeah. Let, let's talk about karma because you know I have a love of Eastern philosophy and it is so often misunderstood, yeah. talked about in incorrect terms. So, and it's very different from eternal recurrence of Nietzsche. Yeah. So the Nietzschean idea of eternal recurrence is that the universe is itself infinite in size and time. It is completely, it's always been, always will be, and it never ends. The idea being that if it never ends and it always is and always will be, every action will repeat itself and with every possible variation therein because there's an infinite a timeline and infinite space for events to happen. So somewhere else in the universe now, this podcast is happening. This podcast is also happening somewhere in the universe now with every possible different variation whether that is, you know, wearing different headphones about a different subject. There's one version where we never curse. There's a version in which we're not humans, but we're raccoons. Or lizard people. And so on and so forth, because infinite time, infinite space, everything that can happen will happen. And the idea being that if this life is a life that's going to be eternal in its very nature and scope, what kind of life are we living? And that is a lesson of Nietzsche's. That is not the metaphysical philosophy of karma. Right. So karma, the universe is finite. It is not infinite in scope. And to a ancient Brahmin developing it, the idea of the universe is simply India. To them, that is the, the scope of the universe because that the universe is only ever as big as we can perceive it to be. It's never bigger than that. It's never smaller than that. And so we have now expanded our view of the universe because we can see a lot more of it. But in the ancient Indic world, it's India, you know, not to say that the ancient Indics didn't know other people. So as their view expanded, but it's earth, right? And there's a infinite, there's a finite amount of space in which events could happen. But as far as they could perceive, there was an infinite amount of time for this space to exist. The earth had always been because the earth was the universe. The earth would always be. So there's infinite amount of time finite amount of space in the idea of a finite amount of space, everything within said space will recycle and it has recycled for an infinite amount of time. So the idea that you could perchance gain more karma by being really nice and, you know, tipping your bartender a little more than you would or be get less karma for tipping the bartender a little less. While in certain respects is true. Keep in mind your born with an infinite amount of karma. Right. You know, so you're born with a karma that has, has been existing for a long period of time. And over the course of time, you will eventually get a little better and a little better till eventually you get reincarnated even as a deity. Yeah, you become a god. Depending upon if you're a, a orthodox or an unorthodox Eastern religion, you can be reborn as a god, but gods can themselves die till eventually you get to nirvana. What we see 
in this afterlife system that Chidi develops is much more like karma than it is like... Um, like eternal recurrence. Like yeah. eternal recurrence. You carry a little bit of your past lives with you in karma. So whether you were a blade of grass, a worm, a king, a beggar, a little bit of that comes with you because karma comes with you. And eventually all life will evolve into nirvana and escape what's called the samsara or the cycle of life and death. Now, it's been a long time since I've studied Indic philosophy, so there might be a few details that I haven't gotten completely tight in internet. If I've gotten anything wrong, let me know. Find me on Twitter and correct me. Um, but the idea being that eventually we all get to nirvana. I think it's telling that a few pieces of evidence from the finale to get it back to the good place. One, we see Jason in the very end operating in many ways like a Eastern monk, yeah, he like an Eastern John aesthetic, you yeah. know, like someone who finds content in themselves has no more desires and then eventually is okay. Just moving on to the next phase. And that next phase we could understand as a, as a form of Nirvana, the self is gone and dissolves, but is still somehow part of the universe while being above it. We see, um, as well, probably the best emotional scene in the entire show is Chidi and Eleanor watching a sunset and, you know, her being like, yo, man, I'm just like, I'm sad, man. Like, this is sad. And she goes, you know, don't you have a, you know, a lock or a Kant quote? And he's just like, you know, they're all about rules and regulations, for like the more spiritual stuff, you have to go to Eastern philosophy in which we get the quote about the wave. I'm tearing up thinking about it. I have the quote. I'm going to read it. I'm going to try not to cry, but I just want to share it because I think it's so good. Chidi says, picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts when it passes through, and it's there, and you can see it. You know what it is. It's a wave. And then it crashes on the shore and it's gone. But the water is still there. The wave was just a different way for the water to be for a little while. That's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean where it came from and where it's supposed to be. This quote is based on the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk uh, and just a wonderful writer on such topics as mindfulness and mortality and achieving, you know, a sense of peace uh, in your, your selfhood and your, your renunciation of selfhood. Uh, if you can read his works, I would highly recommend it. They're incredible. Um, but this pivot that happens where Eleanor asks for some Western philosophy and Chidi offers Eastern philosophy, I think is happening um, throughout the finale. I think there is a slight turn, uh, you know, away from the, you know, strict moral regulations of setting up a new system of the afterlife toward uh, just an inner reflection of these characters. They fixed it, you know, they fixed the universe, they saved a bunch of people, they figured out how to judge moral character, and now they have to figure out how to be at peace with the end. Uh, and to do that, they look away from philosophy, you know, uh, 
capital P philosophy, and they look towards spirituality somewhat. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting pivot for this show to take, because it's not leaving anything behind, but it is saying, in our final moments, uh, as embodied people or as spirits in the afterlife, uh, how we take comfort isn't necessarily in uh, morality and rules. It's in picturing a wave. It's in recognizing that we are part of something, that we are made of something, that we have always been part of something and will go back to that thing, and that death is just the wave crashing on the shore. Right. The rules and regulations are important to get you to the point yeah. where you can be in the good place. And once you are in the good place, it's almost as if there is where the real work begins. And that real work, I mean, Jason says, you know, when asked, like, how did you know you were ready? And he was just like, I realize that the air inside my lungs is the same as the air outside my lungs. And just this profound statement of being like, I just realized I'm one with this. I have no more desire. I have no more want. I have no more need. I played the perfect game of Madden. I played the perfect game of Madden and I'm ready to become one with the universe. And we do see a recycling effect when Eleanor walks through the door. Yeah. We see her kind of transition into these like little whiffs of light and land on a person who decides instead of throwing away a neighbor's mail in a shared condo or apartment building to go and actually deliver it to the person who just happened to be Michael. Michael real man. Yes. And a very like fitting end where, you know, he gets to tell this person from all the love and wisdom of his heart, you know, take it sleazy, take it sleazy using Eleanor's line, getting what he always wanted, a rewards card and to say, take it sleazy. Yep. And, um, It's truly remarkable, the idea that you can find this level of peace and that these characters got to find this level of peace. And I tend to think of it more in an Eastern sense of achieving nirvana, escaping samsara, escaping that there is still suffering in the good place. They got to the good place and found out that it's a broken, suffering mess. It's supposed to be paradise but they suffer there and they find a way to make the good place to prepare you for the real peace, which is just becoming one with the universe. And what a comforting thought. Wouldn't it be amazing if we all were able to, uh, you know, confidently step into the light confidently, you know, know that we had enough time with the people that we loved, known that we were able to achieve everything we could possibly imagine, uh, know, knowing that we were able to repair relationships we thought were beyond repair, uh, and knowing that we got to play that perfect game of Madden. Uh, just what an incredible gift to these characters to give them all the time in the world and the uh, heroic choice to step away from it. I think uh, what it boils down to in those final moments when we see the drops of light spreading throughout the cosmos and one tiny little bit of goodness, of good energy landing on a person so that he can do a a very small act of kindness. What this is really saying is that uh, us striving to be good, us striving to be better, uh, and to put good out into the universe can actually do that. In this this show, in The Good Place, 
your acts of kindness, your effort, your struggle, your toil to become a better person can actually influence the entire universe. Even if it's just a little bit, you putting good out into the world creates good in that world. I totally, totally agree. And uh, yeah, I think that's beautiful. Do you have any uh, final thoughts on The Good Place? There's a lot more to say. I think The Good Place, we have done some character case studies. I believe we did Eleanor. Yeah, we did. I think The the Good Place is one that I'd like to come back to in The Midnight Myth, more specifically, do a rewatch where we watch the whole show from the perspective of a character and talk about those characters. I'd be, I would love to dive more into Michael and Janet. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, just sadly, once you've gone through a podcast of Jeremy Baramy's, you get to a point where you do have to eventually end. I think there's no fitter. There's no better end to this podcast than what you just said, that we can do a little bit of good in the world and that that good will recycle. And if we meet our Chidi's, Tahani's, Eleanor's, and Jason's along the way, with the help of a Janet and a Michael, you can find a, a an ethical structure and you can reshape it and reform it into something that's a little fairer, a little better, and hopefully uh, something that really benefits all of humankind. Those are my final thoughts. Uh, I just want to say here at the end, uh, you mentioned them briefly at the beginning, but I know our friends, uh, the Bingeables podcast, are going to be doing a full binge uh, rewatch of the entire show with Online Warriors podcast. And so they're going to have an awesome episode coming out soon. We'll be sure to share that from our social media platforms too. I can't wait to hear it because I think that this show put out some good into the world. I think it encouraged all of us to look at our actions, look at our relationships, and at least for a moment after watching an episode, think, am I being the best version of myself? And uh, listeners, I hope you, I hope you're trying. That's all I hope. I hope that you try because trying is better than not trying. And hey, if you heard of a particular piece of philosophy for the first time on The Good Place and you're interested, take a class or even better, use Audible, go to your library, go to the bookstore, get one of these works of philosophy, sit down and read Aristotle's thoughts on ethics, you know, actually pick up this literature and engage with it. And I joked in the beginning that it's hard to read because it is. It really is. It really is. But let me tell you, there have been amazing thoughts written by some of the most brilliant minds in human history. And one of the subjects they all invariably will get to is how to live a good and happy life. And there are so many amazing takes on it and amazing ways to look at it. And one of the things that, as someone who has been a lifelong philosophy reader, to see them in action in a comedy show that is so well acted so well-directed and so well-scripted like this just really brought so much joy into my life. And uh, until next time, everyone. Take it sleazy. Be kind. Be kind.